Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. Brian Mulroney shaped the Canada that we know today. He introduced many of the ideas and policies that now seem second nature to us, from negotiating free trade to protecting the environment, and yes, to bringing in the GST. He was known as a great statesman. He led the often lonely fight against apartheid in South Africa and was in power when the USSR collapsed. Mulroney was a politician who wouldn't just make deals, but friendships that lasted beyond his days in office and stretched around the globe. He was the only foreign leader invited to speak at the funerals of Ronald Reagan and his good friend, George H.W. Bush. No occupant of the Oval Office was more courageous, more principled, and more honorable than George Herbert Walker Bush. It was an example of Mulroney's art of balancing respect with a bit of humor. It's very flattering to have the President of the United States take notes as you speak. And even someone as modest as me. Now the tributes are for Mulroney himself. From the personal with George W. Bush posting, he was smart and charming, fun and kind. My family is grateful for Brian Mulroney's friendship. To the historic, the president of South Africa saying Mulroney spoke out against apartheid and took a stand when many in the international community were wavering. With more on his legacy, we're joined by Frank McKenna, former New Brunswick Premier and former Canadian Ambassador to the United States. Nice to see you, Mr. McKenna. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I know that Brian Mulroney was a dear friend of yours and our condolences on your loss. We wanted to sit down with you this morning to hear some of the stories of his life and to remember the contribution that he made to this great country. When you think about Brian Mulroney as the prime minister, what jumps out to you the most uh, in your memories? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And, and you know, it, it goes from big to small. Uh, on the on the big side, he left huge f- footprints in the sand, and uh, free trade would be one of them. And the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The fact is that was a very very controversial uh, measure back then. Now it's universally accepted by Canadians that this has been good for us, and all political parties are committed to it. But we had that. We had GST, uh, which is controversial uh, on the environment front, acid rain, uh, ozone layer. Uh, uh, of course, everybody knows about his work uh, on apartheid in South Africa and on and on. In, in my case as a premier, I paved the road from one end of New Brunswick to the other with Brian Mulroney, and people will never forget him for that. Uh, the bridge to Prince Edward Island uh, was Brian Mulroney. Hibernia, the offshore accords. Uh, I, I could just name things uh, big all over the country, not just in our region. But the small part of it is the individual acts of kindness, uh, the calls uh, that he would make to people in hospital or in the case of a bereavement, uh, uh, the way that he would remember uh, little things in your life. And in my case, we, we, we had a relationship that, uh, that spanned many decades and, and we just had so many touchstones, but most of them were just about um, relationships, about growing up in small communities in different parts of Canada and uh, being able to uh, put our hands across our political differences and, and just be warm friends. And uh, I can't think of uh, 
more than a week or two when we didn't talk and laugh and uh, sometimes cry about uh, memories and stories. So um, those are the smaller things, but in many ways, the more meaningful things. What is your favorite story about Brian Mulroney? Well, there's a thousand stories about it. I'll, I'm going to tell you two if I have a minute. Uh, one was the incorrigible Brian Mulroney. Uh, um, I, I was elected in the middle of the free trade debate and uh, we had to make a decision. It was a very difficult decision. I was a Liberal Premier and the Liberal government, Liberal Party nationally was opposed to free trade. Uh, but I went my own way, and uh, uh, in New Brunswick, after uh, as a lawyer, I, 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 I'm a little bit anal about these things, so I read the whole agreement, and I ended up uh, thinking we should sign it, um, and we ended up uh, deciding to go that route in New Brunswick. So I called up the Prime Minister to tell him that, and uh, he said he was thrilled. He, he wanted, obviously, people from across the aisle. He said he was thrilled, and he said, do you want anything, uh, anything I can do for you? And I said, look, there's only one thing, Prime Minister. Don't embarrass me with this. This is hard within uh, my party. Please don't embarrass me. And he said, no, don't worry about that. Uh, an hour later, my comms director comes rushing in. He said, you better see this. And I said, what, what is it? And I walked in, and it was question period. And he was going after John Turner, and he was saying, you should do like McKenna. You should read the agreement. He read the agreement. And that's why he's supporting free trade. <laughs> <laughs> I said hello for not embarrassing me. The other quick story I'll tell you is during the middle of Meech Lake, and we were in a really sensitive discussion about the parallel accord, and he called me, uh, his, his uh, switchboard tracked me down. I was at a family reunion uh, at uh, my sister's house. My mother was there. She picked up the phone. She talked to him for about 10 minutes, and then he finally put me on, and told me what the strategy was and was going to be announced tomorrow. And look, Frank, this is top secret. It can never get out because it's so sensitive, et cetera, et cetera, which uh, I got all of that. And I got off the phone and uh, mom said, um, what was that about? And I said, I can't tell you. It's top secret. Da -da -da -da. And she said, well, it's not top secret anymore. She said, this is a party line. There are about eight people listening <laughs> in on that phone call. <laughs> did, did, did that ever leak out? <laughs> No, it never leaked out. Well, the, the eight people on the phone call would have no idea that what they were listening to was a matter of national importance. What do you think uh, Brian Mulroney's legacy is for this country? I think, uh, I think when, when he's judged by history, he'll be considered one of our most consequential prime ministers uh, by a long shot. He's already been judged the most environmentally friendly prime minister by, uh, by uh, many academics who've looked at it, at his track record. But I, I, think we, I think people judge leaders not by the, he calls it the trivia, <clears throat> the trivia and the trash, the little things. It's the big things, the consequential things. And I think uh, free trade and the uh, GST are, are two of the most consequential public policy uh, developments it, it literally in the history of our country they're they're really pretty pretty transformational I think historians will weigh in on that in the, in the fullness of time but in Atlanta Canada he'll always be considered our greatest prime minister uh, everything from offshore accords to Hibernia to uh, the, the big benefits uh, office in Summerside to the fixed links uh, to ACOA. But for the country as a whole, he'll be considered wonderful for the things he accomplished 
and he'll be given credit for the things that he tried to accomplish. And by that, I mean constitutional reconciliation, uh, because he put his uh, life's blood uh, into that and uh, did everything he could in his power. He was the last really red Tory prime minister that this country has had before the Conservative Party underwent a major transformation. He was also somebody who was always, as is the evidence with you, willing to reach across the aisle. He advised Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when he was dealing with Donald Trump on NAFTA 2.0 and the difficulties there. He seemed to exist still in a different world than politicians do today. If he was here right now and he could give Canadian political leaders a piece of advice, what do you think it would be? Look, <clears throat> I'm, glad, I'm glad you opened this subject. Uh, he would say that you can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, he would say that, you know, when the game is over and we're off the ice, we can have a beer together and talk. That's what he would say. Uh, he, was a, he was a centrist. And he would say, and I would say to any political people who are listening, there are more people and more votes and more and much more room for progress in the center than on either side of the spectrum. It's like golf. We always used to laugh about that. Uh, it's like golf. You hit the ball in the fairway and you end up having a good game. There's no reason for you to hook it or to slice it. And now I find that uh, we're becoming not as bad, but somewhat polarized, akin to the United States of America. And I just don't agree with that. I, I think that as a country built on consensus and reconciliation of uh, two founding cultures and First Nations. And I, I, I just deplore now when I see provinces and federal government yelling at each other rather than trying to work uh, across political boundaries. So he would be aghast, and he is. We talk about a lot, we talked about a lot of the time. Uh, he, he just did not agree with that style of politics. He was much, much more into consensus building. Ambassador McKenna, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your wonderful memories. Thank you for having me. The federal government has tabled their online harms bill in an attempt to crack down on hateful content online and to make the Internet safer for children. It's welcome news for those like the mother of Amanda Todd, the 15-year-old sextortion victim who died by suicide. Amanda's perpetrator harassed her for two and a half years, and every time we had to try and find where to go to get images taken down, which was fruitless. It was just so much that eventually all that took its toll on Amanda. But critics are saying it could also create a chilling effect on free speech and that there are questions about oversight and accountability in the act. For more on this, I'm joined by Justice Minister Arif Varani. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to see you. Thank you very much for having me. I think there's no question in people's minds that there is a lot of difficulty in dealing with the issue of online hate, abusive content, uh, child pornography, all sorts of really awful things that are out there on the Internet. And as anyone who's tried to report it to a social media giant knows, it's very tough to get that taken down. So there's an understandable reason behind wanting to bring this bill forward. But there's also concern that there could be overreach and that there's not necessarily the type of oversight required um, to ensure that there's not abuse of power. Are you worried that this bill could, in fact, be interpreted 
to silence critics. Well, let me just zoom out for a second. So Mercedes, the bill is fundamentally about protecting children and about empowering adults. Uh, and that's fundamentally what, what motivates the bill. And it's about ensuring that the safety you have in, phys in the physical world is translated over into the online space. In terms of some of the concerns that have been expressed, what I'd say to people first off is that my job as Minister of Justice is unique around the cabinet table. I swear an oath to, the to uphold the Constitution. That includes every viewer's rights to freedom of expression protected under the Charter. I take that duty very, very seriously. In terms of the consultation we did in the last three and a half years, we talked to Canadians, we talked to Canadian experts and academics. We talked to people in law enforcement. We talked also to people abroad in other countries. And we learned about what they had done in their countries and about what worked and what didn't. So as you said, there, there are categories of content that we don't believe belong in the public domain. Child sexual exploitation material, child abuse, child violence, things like revenge porn. That has no place in the public domain. For the other categories that we're identifying, we're not saying immediate takedown. We're saying to platforms, recognize these risks, identify them, work to moderate those risks and reduce the risks and report on us on how it's going. And then there'll be a conversation between the Digital Safety Commissioner and the platform about the exact approach that's being taken. Well, and this Digital Safety Commission is the one who's making the decisions. They have remarkable powers. If I look at a few, it includes ruling making, pardon me, making rulings on what content should be inaccessible, investigation powers, hearings under certain circumstances that could be closed to the public. Who is this Digital Safety Commission? Because it's very different than, say, hate speech, normally where you'd have the police and the Crown making a determination on what's a violation. Well, I think that's also a really important question that you're raising. So the Digital Safety Commission is going to be robust. The Digital Safety Commissioner is going to be a, an individual who's voted on in the chamber that's right behind me, in the House of Commons and in the Senate. So Canadians, through their own elected representatives, will have a voice in who should occupy that important role because they need to have confidence in that role. But it's also really important to, to, for people to understand who are the decision makers. So a Facebook, for example. Facebook makes a determination. That determination is vetted by the Digital Safety Commissioner. The Digital Safety Commissioner can make an order, as you outlined, but that order can then be vetted by a court of law. And lastly, the definition of hatred itself is not one that I dreamed up just yesterday. It is a definition that is entrenched in our laws as pronounced upon by the Supreme Court of Canada. So it's a Supreme Court definition of hatred that hits what we call detestation and vilification and does not touch awful but lawful commentary. So we're not talking about insults, offensive remarks, bad jokes. We're talking about things like calling for the extermination of a people. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about hatred that would be caught on the, from this important piece of legislation. One of the most difficult things police will tell you about this is, is knowing who's actually posting this information. And often these are companies that are based in the U.S. And, and you actually have to go through the U.S. Embassy, if you're a police officer, to get a warrant to be able to get Instagram, for example, to produce who's behind this. How do you deal with the online anonymity? Because obviously if someone is posting hateful content under their own name, that's much easier to trace. But most people are running this through burner accounts, and there's the reality that these are not Canadian companies. So it's a very interesting point that you're raising, and I think it underscores the need that you have to address this, this, this problem from multiple fronts. We are facilitating prosecution by improvements to the criminal code and through something called the Mandatory Reporting Act for things like child porn. But at the same time, I've heard from those prosecutors and those law enforcement officials that ultimately the key thing is to get the material taken down. That doesn't require finding out 
who has posted the material. If you identify the material itself as the problem, you address the acute problem, which is the, the rapid circulation of the hateful material, or in the case of Carol Todd, Amanda's mother, the re-victimization of her daughter even today as images of Amanda continue to circulate 10 years later after her, da her daughter unfortunately has passed, and as well after the fact that her perpetrator was actually prosecuted already. The re-victimization re must stop, and that's what this kind of bill will address. One of the things that I thought was um, surprising and, and the most interesting in this was that the bill introduces a power of house arrest for people who may commit a hate crime in the future. It's not very often that we see the justice system act on a non-existent crime, and, and there's a lot of concern about that potentially being abused. Usually people who are under house arrest, it's because they have uh, been arrested, they've been charged, there is something that they are alleged to have done. This is like a future crime. Does that precedent concern you? So it's, it's not actually a precedent, uh, Mercedes, and I think it bears some, some explanation. So again, first point is, is that we're talking about hatred that hits that Supreme Court definition. We're not talking about somebody on their smartphone on a Sunday afternoon passing around a bad joke. That's the first point. Secondly, we know that hatred is on the rise in this country. We've seen StatsCan evidence that shows it's a 130% rise around the country in the last five years. The third point is that what I've heard from victims and law enforcement through this, through this extensive consultation is that they need more tools to address this. The peace bond that you're talking about, where you could have conditions on people's behavior, is a well-understood and well-used criminal justice tool. It's used sometimes on the back end once someone has, has undertaken some behavior, but it is also used preventatively. Think about domestic violence, intimate partner violence. It is used very frequently by the criminal justice system to keep women largely safe from their, uh, their abusive spouses. This is a well understood tool. It requires certain steps to be taken. So the tool would be things like you need to demonstrate evidence, convince a, a judge that you have the evidence to impose such a peace bond. You also need, as an added safeguard that we put in place in this legislation, the consent of the local attorney general. So if this is in Ontario, the provincial attorney general in Ontario. But the most important thing that I would want to communicate to viewers is that we are not talking again about insults launched from a smartphone on a Sunday afternoon. What we're talking about is think about in Ontario the individual who killed four members of the Avzal family, if we know that that person has antecedents where he's demonstrated threats, actions, behavior, animus towards a community, it would be, in my view, very appropriate to attach conditions to prevent a person like that from being close to a mosque, close to a synagogue, for example. That's the kind of peace bond that we're envisaging. Uh, aren't those conditions already present under the criminal code, though, if you believe that somebody's going to carry out a violent act or, or violate hate speech laws? Not vis-a-vis, not -vis a peace bond exists in the criminal code, yes, but not a peace bond in respect of hate offences such as the public incitement of hatred, the willful promotion of hatred, advocating genocide, etc. That link has not been made and that is new. And if you, if you remarked on the press conference we had when we launched this bill on, on uh, last Monday, standing side by side with me were the National Council of Canadian Muslims and the Centre for Jewish and Israel Affairs. Jews and Muslims around this country both recognize and have called for this specific provision to help keep Canadians safe from the rising hatred that we're seeing. Interesting. So basically, uh, to, to wrap up for our viewers, it's instead of having that peace bond necessarily attached to an individual who might be at risk, you're looking at a whole community or, or acts against uh, those protected communities. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Mercedes. A state funeral will be held for former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney later this month. It will be an opportunity for Canadians to come together to say goodbye and to reflect on his legacy. 
This week, for one last thing, we decided to do things a little bit differently, giving the last word to former Prime Minister Joe Clark on what he remembers most about Brian Mulroney. I met with him up on Parliament Hill. Prime Minister Clark, we're here on Parliament Hill, where you spent so many years of your life, as did Brian Mulroney, and some of those were spent with him. When you think of his legacy or a final thought of what he represents to the Canadian political community and the history of this country, what stands out to you? Well, I think it is that while he is widely known as someone who was a dominant figure in uh, Canadian life, what we underestimate was how much he actually changed. He initiated major changes in free trade. He was critical in uh, agree in uh, helping uh, bring South Africa to an end to apartheid. A range of other questions that uh, required real leadership, which he provided. If there is one moment that you would look back on that you shared with Brian Mulroney and in your personal relationship, one story you would share, what is it? <laughs> well, he and I were of a certain age. His eyes began to fade before my eyes faded. Uh, I finally got a prescription for glasses, but I was too uh, self-aware to wear it in the House of Commons. I was standing in Parliament reading an important message. I got through the English. I clearly was having trouble seeing the French. Uh, he got up from his seat next to me, handed me his glasses, and I completed the statement. That kind of sort of generosity, sensitivity to colleagues, uh, I think was a, a strong part of Ryan's life. Prime Minister Clark, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and stories. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.